Welcome to this week's Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters and joining me today are Kate Bailey and Emma Ajimang, Deputy Personal Finance Editor and Personal Finance Writer at Investors Chronicle. We also have special guest Peter Doherty, Managing Partner and Chief Investment Officer of Tideway Investment Partners. Like much of the rest of the world, you're probably still digesting the news that controversial property tycoon Donald Trump will soon have control of the world's largest nuclear arsenal, let alone the effect that his victory has had on world markets over the last two days. Now, this might make US equities seem like the last place you want to be as an investor. But Emma, you've been looking at this area and talking to the experts about it, and they don't take this view. Why is this? That's right. History suggests that presidential elections actually have a limited impact on US markets. So um, research that was done by ETF provider Source found that six months after the last 11 US elections, bonds, equities and the US dollar had all made gains. And the total of treasuries and equities um, return was about 4%. So, you know, arguably um, a lot less impact than people generally tend to think. Okay. Now, are there any other reasons why um, these experts said that you might want to have an exposure to US equities? Yes. I mean, many of the people we spoke to said that, you know, the US has some of the most innovative companies in the world. Just think of the so-called fan companies, Facebook, Amazon, Netflix and Google. Um, So technology, their leading technology makes this market um, a really sort of attractive one. And then the other key thing that drives the US economy is is consumption. And that, some of the experts we spoke to said, is is well supported by, you know, continued low unemployment, low energy, um, a strong housing market and positive wage growth. Some of the other people we spoke to were also quite bullish about the US's sort of economic growth going forward and the fact that they think that this bull run of always um, has been going on in sort of the second longest bull run on record. But the fact that we haven't had sort of normal growth since the financial crisis suggests that there actually still might be some way for this bull run to, to run. At least that was some of the things that, that some of the arguments the people we spoke to were suggesting. OK, now that all sounds good. But are there any reasons other than the next US president as to why you might not want to invest in US equities? Yes, the the key sort of question really is about um, company profits. Um, some of the people we spoke to sort of felt that, you know, company profits peaked earlier this year and that with US shares looking expensive compared to their history, it, it might not be a good time to sort of be looking to invest in this area. Um, there's also concerns about the strong dollar, which people we spoke to who were less, sort of, you know, more bearish on the US felt that it was hurting companies' competitiveness you know, overseas. And then particularly for UK investors, there's a worry of sterling's weakness against the dollar. So, um, you know, do you really want to be using your weak pound to buy expensive US shares? So that's something that investors need to weigh up. Okay, Peter, do you think Donald Trump poses a risk to the returns you could get from US equities? Well, I think it's a a very mixed picture. I think there are some positives and more positives than negatives. So, I think in term in terms of having Trump as as president, I mean one of the main challenges that Obama faced was not having control of the entire process. So, in terms of wanting to actually execute policies, that was very challenging. Trump and the Republicans have uh, the House, the Senate, all the executive committees. So it's most likely that they'll be able to actually implement what they want to, and that will, that may 
sort of uncork or, or free up some of the resources that um, otherwise be stuck. There's a, a well-known narrative around infrastructure investment. And, you know, whilst bond yields have actually quite significantly uh, retraced uh, this week since the, uh, since the result, they're still uh, at low levels. And so I imagine that the U.S. is in a position to borrow effectively at low rates and invest, and that, that, that could be supportive of equities. I would say, on the other hand, though, we're starting from a quite an expensive valuation. If you look at a number of different metrics, whether it's uh, profits as a, a proportion of the of the valuation, uh, if you look at uh, Tobin's Q and other sort of other measures, there are some signs of sort of mini bubble. And you know, one of the things that's been going on, which will probably unwind now, is companies borrowing through the corporate bond market to either pay dividends or or buy back shares. As bond yields go up, that will stop, and that is one quite meaningful leg of support that will be removed from now. Do you have any other concerns? I mean, one thing that sprung to mind was the possibility of a Federal Reserve interest rate rise. Do you think that's going to happen, and is it a risk to the path of US equities? Uh, I do. I think the, the we're getting into slightly difficult territory there because obviously Trump has made some comments about the fact that he thought the Fed was was political, they kept rates low for Obama, they're going to raise rates on him if you like. I mean I think there's a view that if um, the government is spending and uh, is going for fiscal expansion, uh, particularly um, as Emma said based on uh, very low unemployment and quite a quite a busy economy, there is a case to raise rates and so December uh, Fed fund rate rise is now back on the table and people are talking about having two or three or more of those next year. It's very hard to see equities running away uh, on the upside if you end up moving the discount rate from, uh, you know, uh, half um, to 1% up to sort of two or three normalised percent. I mean, that, that, that could put some uh, some pressure on equity valuations. Okay. Now, like you say, it's a really mixed picture. So, I mean, what should investors do? Do you think investors should have an allocation in their portfolios to US equities at the moment? Uh, I think they should. I mean, there are, as as we've we've, we've touched on, there are some world-class companies making um, uh, very good profits and, and in businesses that are quite resilient. That isn't going to change. I think if you, uh, particularly as we talked about uh, as a, as a sterling-based investor, if you're going to get the exposure, you might want to feed it in over a number of months to sort of average in. In that case, I mean, you've seen sterling's actually bounce back up to about 126 now. Um, that was heading down towards 120. If that heads up into the 130s, which is which is very plausible, then you're going to end up with a, um, a currency loss as a, as a sterling investor in a dollar dollar asset. So you want to be scaling into those. Mm, so currency considerations as well, then another yes, risk. Right. With that in mind, Emma, what kind of funds should investors use if they do decide they want to have an allocation to US equities? Well, the big question here is whether to go active or passive, because the US is a sort of notoriously hard market for active managers to beat. Um, we spoke to Tilney Best Invest and they some research that they had done found that less than 7% of funds in the Investment Association North America sector had beaten the S&P 500 over the past five years. So, you know, mm. 93% of them hadn't beaten it. Mm. Um, some of the active funds that did beat the index include IC Top 100 Fund Fidelity American Special Situations. And this is a fund that sort of focuses on underperforming businesses where other investors aren't expecting a recovery, but they think that actually they've been overlooked. 
And over five years, it returned 156%. So, you know, pretty um, good performance. And as I say, it beat the index. Um, other funds that have beaten the S&P 500 include Leg Mason Opportunity, um, Leg Mason Clearbridge US Large Cap Growth, and um, Dodge & Cox Worldwide US Stock. So, you know, those are good active funds to consider as well. On the passive side of things, I mean, the main thing really mm-hmm. is to, to look at... Um, a low ongoing charge, yeah. and um, the fund that you know, sort of, we, we think it's got very, very attractive um, ongoing charge of 0.07 percent is BlackRock North American Equity Tracker Fund. Okay, some useful ideas there. Um, Peter, where do you um, sit in this debate? If you're going to invest in the US, should you go for an active or a passive fund? Well, we tend to do a little bit of both, actually. So uh, we have our own in-house research for uh, individual equities, and they can go into a, what we call a sort of bespoke portfolio. In addition, as, as Emma said, I think the um, the very, very low-cost um, uh, trackers ha- have some value and that they're, they're very useful to, to get some basic exposure. The other thing we also like to do is pick uh, across the capital structure, if you like. So not only equities, but we have... Um, uh, we have a lot of exposure to, to bond and credit bonds in particular. I mean, one sector which I think is uh, it does have value and will benefit from a rising rate environment, of course, is the banking sector. Um, in post the crisis, uh, the US banks have uh, dramatically increased the amount of capital they have. I mean, as much as sort of four to six times uh, more capital now on a risk-weighted basis. Um, as interest rates go up, uh, those stocks will start to do very well. Uh, in fact, you've seen Bank of America is up almost 15% this month alone. So I think on on, um, uh, on the active side, I think you can pick individual names. There are some other uh, ETFs that we like. There's, there's PFF, which is the preferred stock um, uh, ETF that has a yield of over 5%. And again, you've got uh, assets there in the middle of the balance sheets. So you've got equity below you um, and you're well protected from any, um, uh, any risk of loss, really. Okay. Are there any other funds you'd particularly flag? Uh, well, we have um, exposure to uh, to Scottish uh, Mortgage Trust. You know, some of the 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 the, um, the active managers there with uh, with US, US exposure. Okay, so um, that's actually an, a global fund, but with a, yeah. a, a meaningful US allocation. That's right. Yeah. 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 Okay. And then otherwise, we tend to pick um, uh, by regions. So we'll pick a UK income class, European equity, etc. Do it. Do it by by region rather than global. Okay, thank you. Some useful suggestions, um, which neatly takes us on to our next subject. And that is whatever view you take on US equities or any other regional asset, it's important to know how much you're exposed to in different areas and, very importantly, your overall asset allocation. This way you can make sure that you don't over or under allocate to any given asset. The problem here is though that some funds' names or sector categorizations don't give a clear indication of what they expose you to. Now, Emma, you've been looking at some examples of this um, and that some funds typically have a high exposure to the US, even though it's not obvious from their names or sector categorization. What are these um, types of funds and how much are they exposed to the US? Even if you don't hold any US funds, you may still have substantial exposure to the market via any global or global equity income funds that you hold. So, for example, the Association of of Investment Companies uh, have done some research recently and they found that investment trusts in the global sector had an average of 36% um, to North America and global equity income 
trust had an average of 22%. So, you know, if you're not aware that actually um, some, your, your trust or your fund has quite a big exposure to, um, in this case, the, the US, that might be something um, you need to double check. Okay. Why are global and global equity income funds so exposed to the US? Um, well, one reason is that there's a benchmark they use. So many of them will use the MSCI World Index. And if you know if they're closely following the, the index in terms of market um, allocation, that might be a reason that they have a high exposure. So the MSCI World Index has 59% in the US and, and some investment trusts sort of uh, match that completely. So, for example, Martin Curie Global Portfolio also has 59% in the US. Um, Securities Trust of Scotland has 56%. Um, and we mentioned Scottish Mortgage earlier, that has 48% um, exposure to the US. Okay, so um, there's obviously the benchmark, but um, what other reasons do their managers uh, give for having a high allocation to US equities? Well, I mean, the manager of Martin Curie Global Portfolio, which, um, as I said, has 59%, says that the main reason is the exposure um, to the good growth outlook that the US offers compared to other developed countries. So, you know, he's taken um, a bet that actually the US is is going to continue to do well. And that's why he wants, you know, 60% of the portfolio um, exposed to, to the country. The manager at Securities Trust Scotland said that, in a similar sort of way, it's the macroeconomic conditions that the US um, has, the fact that they are they look like they're improving more than any other countries. And we've got this whole debate as to whether or not the Fed is going to raise interest rates. So that's the reason that he's given. Yeah. Now, um, are there any global investment trusts that um, have less exposure to the US and why? Um, yes, there are. So um, the AIC's research found that Lindsay Train has 10%. Um, Law Devonshire Corporation also has a similar amount, as does Seneca Global Income and Growth. And um, the manager for Law Devonshire said that, you know, it's not so much that um, he doesn't like the US as he thinks that there are opportunities elsewhere. So in particular, he is, is favours the UK and says that the higher dividend yields available in the UK make them more attractive um, compared to, to other markets. Okay. Uh, now, Peter, um, you said yourself um, a few moments ago that um, you invest in Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust, but you're actually using it to get um, US exposure because its exposure is really so substantial. So if investors are holding global equities funds, should they avoid holding US funds um, in case they become overexposed? Or for example, if you've already got US funds, should they not buy a global fund um, similarly to avoid having overexposure to the US? You raised some excellent points there. And one of the things that we do at Tideway is look through all of our funds and really weight the portfolio on an asset-by-asset basis. So um, it's very easy to say I'm going to buy half a dozen equity funds and think you're diversified, and they overlap, and you end up, um, for argument's sake, you might have HSBC in five portfolio in, in five of the funds. That's, that's very poor. So one thing to do when you're buying a fund, I think you've uh, alluded to it, is um, look beyond the headline, beyond the sector, and actually let's say – Pick the top um, ten assets or twenty assets. Pick those names. Allocate um, you know the, the the right amount of money to each fund and end up with a sort of full look through on the portfolio. So I think um, yes, in short, either say I'm going to only invest in very specific 
narrow regional funds or, or pick a global fund. If you do mix the two, you have some risk of, uh, of, of doubling up where you're not quite, uh, not quite sure about that unless you look, look through the actual underlying assets. Okay. Now, you mentioned <coughs> Scottish Mortgage <coughs> Investment Trust. Do you use any of the global funds or global equity income funds of your clients? Uh, we use Lindsay Train, actually, so that, that was a, a good one to have mentioned for us. Um, I think they're a great manager, good long-term track record, mm. um, and again, are in businesses that are stable, um, long-term, you know, high ROE businesses. Okay, thank you. Some useful things to look out for there. Now, if you're a parent and you haven't already opened one, you might be thinking of starting a junior individual savings account, or junior ISA for short, to build up savings for your children. But this is just one of the very many ways you could save for your children. So before you open a junior ISA, you should consider whether this or one of the very many other options is better for your situations and goals. Kate, um, what are some of the key considerations parents need to make when they start saving for children? Um, So I think one of the first things to think about is whether you want to save or invest. Um, Obviously, investing can be, or first, it can be a bit intimidating. And secondly, it can sound like something which you're really going to have to keep on top of. Um, But in fact, it can be easy. You don't necessarily have to be watching a portfolio like this all the time. Um, So firstly, that's something to think about. If you're saving in cash, your savings might not be keeping pace with inflation and your returns could be pretty miserly compared to the returns you could get if you invest the money. And then you need to think about what you're saving for. Uh, So it's good to have a goal in mind. You might want to be saving for university. You might want to be saving for a deposit for your child's home. And again, those things could, you know, rise above inflation. So that's something to think about as well when you're trying to choose between cash or investing. And I think actually another important thing to think about is your child's tax allowances. Because often we're thinking, when we're thinking about ISAs and SIPs, we're often thinking about making the most of tax-efficient saving. But in fact, your, your child does have quite a lot of tax allowances, which they can max out. So it's less important to have tax-efficient wrappers here, I think. Um, for example, children have a personal allowance of 11000 um, and they won't be earning income. So that's quite a lot that you can save without tax being an issue. They have a dividend allowance, and they also have the personal savings allowance. So I think those are all things that are important to think about when you're deciding which route to go down. Okay, now um, I think, um, as we said, there are lots and lots of options. So um, thinking about parents who want to invest rather than save, what are, let's say, maybe a couple of the options or examples of the options um, for investing for children? Um, So in terms of vehicle, um, you could think about a junior ISA. So that's one of the ones um, we most commonly hear about. So in that, you can save up to £4,080 a year and the pot will grow tax-free. Your child does get control of it aged 18, which is a bit of a sticking point for some parents who don't want to hand that over um, to their their child on their 18th birthday. And also, Jizers, they can be stocks and shares um, or cash, obviously. Um, And they're, they're quite easy. There's a massive range of these. So you can kind of mix and match from fund supermarkets or, or kind of go down other, other routes. Another quite interesting one is an investment trust savings scheme. 
So this is um, a way of paying into an investment trust um, on a much cheaper way than if you bought one on a platform. And you can do it monthly or with lump sums. You're not charged any annual fees most of the time. And you can control when the child gets access. The downside of this is you get less flexibility than with um, a stocks and shares JISA. You can hold kind of one trust or trust from one fund house. Um, and there aren't the same tax benefits. But it's a very low cost and kind of easy way to, to manage investments. If you're starting from scratch, how do you go about building up an investment portfolio for your child? Okay, so um, assuming you're starting from scratch and putting your maximum allowance in, you really only need to start with one fund in a JISA, for example. Uh, a good way to start out is to have one very globally diversified fund so that you've got kind of a spread of assets from around the world. And then when you get more money into it, so kind of year by year, you can start to increase the number of funds in your JISA. And then start to think about having maybe a core and satellite approach. So your core might be some global funds, might be some more defensive funds. And around the edges, you might hold some higher risk ones. Because uh, one key thing to think about when saving for children is you have got a long term time horizon. So you can accept quite a lot of risk in a way you want risk or volatility because you want the fund to build and you've got time for the market to go up and down. So around, around the edges or smaller holdings, you might have emerging markets or Asian equities um, or just very high growth funds. And the maximum you'd ever want, say the experts, should be about 10 to 15 funds. And that would be, you know, when your fund reaches something like 50,000. OK. And what kind of funds could you maybe populate this JISA with? So for the core, you might want to look at things like Fidelity Global Dividend Fund, and that targets growth and income from stocks, global stocks. Or you might want to look at Linzel Train Global Equity, um, which again is, is a global fund with a very good reputation. Um, or something like Fundsmith Equity, which targets 20 to 30 countries, which are very resilient to global change. Um, and they've got quite defensive attributes, like the ability to sustain high return on operating capital. So it's things like that to start out with. Okay, some interesting options. Now, turning to um, people who maybe want to save for children in cash, I mean, what sort of options do they have? So you've got things like child savings accounts, obviously, which you can open up at banks or building societies. Um, and then you've got things like premium bonds, which um, issued by the NSNI, a very popular savings product. And the benefit of that is that you have the potential of winning a prize regularly so the money is obviously sitting in a bond and then you might win on a monthly basis there are also nsni children's bonds and those are five-year renewable bonds designed for children under 16 and those make a fixed interest payment each year tax-free uh, the child gets control of the bond on their 16th birthday with those you can invest between 25 pounds and 3,000 pounds per bond issue in 25 pound units Okay. Thank you, Kate. Now, Peter, on the subject of cash, um, I think as Kate mentioned, it doesn't make such high returns as investments. So should parents saving for kids totally avoid cash investments? Well, that's a very good question. I think there are, uh, the way we look at that is uh, we have what's called a horizon view. So we will say to clients, if you need cash in zero to five years you, uh, and you're going, to, you're going to need that money, you want to be in cash or cash equivalent because you don't want to be selling maybe at a, at a bad time. If you have a five to ten year horizon for the money, then you can start to buy equity or some other uh, medium term uh, investments. And then ten years plus, you can go long only uh, equities and, and, and 
manage through any volatility. So that first piece, zero to five years cash-cash equivalent, is really if you're going to need the money. I think if you're investing for your children uh, long-term, you probably want to be avoiding cash at the moment only because uh, you're going to get a sort of negative real return. Your rates are still going to be around half, one, one and a half percent in the UK and inflation is probably going to be a little bit above that. Okay. And I mean, just thinking about when cash would be a good option, what, you know, what would be possibly instances or, or time frames, you know, um, examples, you know, parents are wanting to have some or all of their investments in cash? Yeah, I think if you're going to need the money, what you don't want to be doing is investing in a, an asset which may go down a few percent or more uh, just because of market volatility, and then you find yourself selling at a bad time. So I think if you have a reasonable expectation that you're going to need some cash, that really should be in cash. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Okay, some really helpful points. Thank you, Pete. And uh, you can see the full roundup of different ways to save for children in this week's money section in the magazine or online. That brings us to the end of this week's show. So it just remains to thank Kate Bealy and Emma Ajimang, Deputy Personal Finance Editor and Personal Finance Writer to Investors Chronicle, and special guest Peter Doherty, Managing Partner and Chief Investment Officer of Tideway Investment Partners. You can read more about whether to invest in US equities, global investment trusts and saving for children in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle and the website. Thank you for listening and have a good weekend. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.